Uh, so just a little bit about myself maybe and how I came to this area of research. I um, am actually still finishing my thesis at the University of Ottawa on the topic of drones and privacy in public. Um, and I started that, it feels like forever ago now, quite a few years ago. Um, and in the meantime, since I began that work, developments like, as I'm sure many of you are already very well familiar, Sidewalk Toronto here on the Toronto waterfront, um, other developments like an Uber test autonomous vehicle that killed a cyclist in Arizona, um, developments like a security robot in San Francisco, which I'll actually speak to more through the presentation, that was used in an attempt to uh, discourage a homeless encampment in a public space um, and was ultimately addressed by city council in that city. Developments like those inspired me to start thinking more broadly. So more broadly about robotic systems beyond just drones, although drones being one interesting and, and current topic to consider right now. And also thinking more broadly about robotic impact in public spaces. So beyond just privacy, thinking about the other impacts that robots have, social impacts that robot systems have in public spaces as they're introduced into those, those spaces, particularly in urban space, um, has been my area of focus for now. Um, and so that's what led me to this and, and to this bigger research question about how law and technology and power intersect in public space and especially how law determines the social impact of automated technologies in that space um, and, and on the individuals who, who utilize that space. So in talking about space, uh, the occupation of space and land, who gets to use it and which values guide what technologies are introduced into that space, I think it's especially important to acknowledge the land that we're on right now. Um, and so I, I thank you for inviting me and I'm very grateful to be here on this land, which is the traditional and ongoing land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently the Mississauga of the Credit River. Um, but I think it's crucial in, in any conversation about robotics in public space and more broadly about how regulation operates in public space um, to recognize the exploitative impact of technologies entering into these spaces. Um, so my presentation, I'm really talking about you know, the colonial Canadian laws as they operate in public space. Uh, so I'm talking about the status quo, but trying to encourage at the very least in this research project a consideration about, a deeper consideration about um, power and exploitation in those spaces and who gets to decide how those spaces are used and what impact that has. But I think there's a much bigger conversation that's happening that needs to continue to happen, especially around robotic regulation and the impact that that has on pre-existing claims to those spaces. Um, and maybe that's not happening, I think that almost clearly isn't happening enough in the conversations around the introduction of robots into public space. Um, and so that's something else that needs to be considered. It won't be, I won't be able to address that in this presentation, but just want to put that into my um, recognition of the land that I'm on and, and what, where we are right now in our meeting. So robots in public space, is this really something that we need to worry about? I've already alluded to the fact that I think yes. Um, and maybe this is, is already familiar to many of you, uh, but robots have already entered into public space. <laughs> um, so one example, this is uh, not a drone, this is me, a picture from my drone. 
Um, but drones operate currently in public airspace. Uh, so laws have actually been passed specifically to permit the introduction of drones, of autonomous aerial vehicle systems into public airspace. Uh, so public airspace is legally designated a public space, but only recently, relatively recently, have laws been passed that permit the introduction of this robotic system into that space. And I've got some of the laws cited there. Uh, additionally, in Ontario, we have laws that have been passed to permit autonomous vehicles to be tested on our highways throughout the province. Uh, a you know, tester has to meet certain prerequisites, but it is permissible to operate autonomous vehicles on public roadways. Additional examples include the use of telerobotics to access different spaces. Um, so here is a picture of a telerobot at a golf course. Uh, there have been national parks throughout North America that have talked about using telerobotics to allow individuals who can't access the space for geographical reasons, for financial reasons, for physical reasons, to have access to those public areas. So increasing the use or the public's use of that space through robotic systems. Uh, robot assistants can make public space more usable, can reduce some of the physical barriers in public spaces. Uh, in infrastructural barriers in public spaces. This particular wheel-shaped example, uh, this is a robot that can carry, that follows somebody around and it can carry bags, it can carry groceries, um, whatever it is that, that an individual might have with them. So making it easier to manipulate or to, to operate through public spaces. And then a, another example becoming increasingly, po oops, increasingly popular are little delivery robots, and this is a little video. Um, little delivery robots that have been permitted in various cities throughout the United States. So there are a number of cities now in the US that have passed municipal bylaws in order to permit the use of delivery robots on sidewalks. Um, some university campuses in the United States also have introduced the use of delivery robots. This one is an example of um, a delivery robot used to transport food. So like if you want to order a sandwich or a pizza or whatever the case might be on your phone you make your order and then the robot can deliver the food to you wherever you're located uh, so making use of public sidewalks in order to you know deliver items goods whatever the case might be um, and each of these robotic systems might have different uh, operators or, or manufacturers that are putting those robots out into that space delivery robots predominantly have been by uh, placed in public spaces by commercial actors to date. So, so things like Uber Eats or other delivery uh, companies that want to bring food to people without the use of a human delivery person. Okay, so laws have opened up public space to robots already. So this is a live issue. I didn't even touch on Sidewalk Toronto, uh, which has in and of itself many different legal and other social considerations. Um, but you know, basically just laying the land here that law has opened up public space to robots and that robots have also opened up public space to new uses. So there's new possibility in those spaces on account of robotic systems. So in thinking about these different robotic systems, their impacts in public space, how they should be increasingly regulated or, or regulated moving forward, um, it, it became challenging for me to figure out what is a good definition of public space? Like, how do I actually understand 
the space that I'm concerned with in thinking about regulation and then thinking about the different types of systems I want to focus on. Uh, and, and this actually led me to really interesting scholarship in the field of law and geography. So just looking at the legal designation of a space as public or private alone wasn't really enough to help understand what it means for a space to be public. Like, how do we understand and identify public spaces? It's not just by legal definition alone. So for anyone who's, who isn't already familiar with law and geography, this is an interdisciplinary subfield in, in law that looks at the intersections between law, space, society, power. So how does law create space and how does space in turn shape the law? And what does that mean for the individuals in those spaces or the social dynamics that those spaces carry with them? Um, so not exclusively focused, law and geography scholars aren't exclusively focused on public space, but have done a lot of, of deep, nuanced thinking around what it is for a space to be public and what that means. Um, and and I'm, I'm maybe oversimplifying, but um, drawing from some of that scholarship, I, I teased out, law geographers have teased out three different criteria that together can combine to help identify when a space is public. So the first criteria is the physical characteristics of the space, so the actual physical accessibility of the space. If a space is not physically accessible, regardless of its legal designation, members of the public can't utilize it. And similarly, depending on the physical accessibility of a space, it may be exclusionary to some members of the public and not others, making it a less of a truly public space. The legal designation of the space is important though. Just because a space is physically accessible by the public, by individuals who constitute the public, um, that in and of itself isn't enough if there isn't a legal protection backing up individuals' rights to be in that space, to exist in that space. So an example, a classic example is a shopping center. You know, it seems public, it's open to anyone who wants to come there. Um, you know, you, it's even designed infrastructurally to encourage people to enter. But because of the legal designation as a private property space, there's still a private property ownership right to exclude. So individuals can be excluded for any reason in, in Canadian law other than a violation of human rights, of the Human Rights Code. So there's still an exclusionary element when the legal designation is private. So the legal designation is still significant to assessing whether a space is actually a public space. And then lastly, and there's a lot of discussion in law and geography on this last point, um, the rules that operate within that space will also serve to make that space more or less public. So where a regulatory regime targets specific people or specific activities, and especially where that's backed up with surveillance and policing, regulatory regimes within a public space can actually make the space less accessible to the public. So we need to be conscious of not just the legal designation, but also the rules that operate in that public space. Um, so an example, 
that is, is commonly cited in, in some of the law and geography work that I looked at would be rules that prohibit things like sleeping on a bench in a park, um, the target particular activities, or panhandling or asking for money on a city sidewalk. That's a public space, but members of the public might be targeted with surveillance and policing based on the regulations that determine what kind of activities are acceptable or permissible in that space. So how is this relevant to robots? Um, I think drones give us a really interesting example. I'm totally biased because a lot of my work has been on drones. But I think the drones uh, serve to sort of underscore how these three different criteria actually really help illuminate what is a public space and what does that mean for the things and people in that space. Um, so, you know, public airspace, for instance, uh, is legally designated as a public space. Ever since the advent of commercial aviation, laws have shifted to allow or to designate public airspace above a certain height over private property. That's a totally contentious issue in and of itself. We can talk about it in the discussion if anyone's interested. Um, but a airspace above a certain height is designated as a public space, and that allows commercial airlines to use that space as they see fit. It allows helicopters to fly there, et cetera, et cetera. Still heavily regulated, um, particularly for the interests of safety, but legally a public space. But public airspace hasn't been truly widely accessible to most members of the public for much of the time that it's been designated as a public space. Not many people have access to their own private aircraft. Um, you know, you can obviously purchase a ticket for a commercial flight, but that's expensive, it's prohibitive. Individuals don't utilize that space widely as a public space. So it's relevant that it's public, legally designated as public, but it hasn't really been physically accessible until drone technology made that a more realistic possibility. So the accessibility of increasingly easy to operate, not easy to operate, but getting easier to operate technology um, that's becoming increasingly financially accessible, still expensive, but the prices of drones are, are becoming more competitive and so it is a little more financially accessible to, to use a drone, has made public airspace a more public space. Like this is a space that people can use for different purposes, so for recreation, for fun, for filming, for making movies. Um, journalists now use drones for what, you know, would be classically defined as a public space or public sphere activity, which is collecting information in the public interest. Um, and I'll talk more about how uh, drone technology in particular has been regulated in ways that might be problematic when we think about the fact that airspace is a public space later on in the presentation. But I think the technology and the way that it makes a legally designated space now physically accessible gives a good example of why it is that law and geography's definition of public space becomes really helpful in thinking about robots and where they operate. Okay, so the extent to which robots can reduce barriers created by public space, uh, those systems can increase the, the publicness or the public nature of that space, I would argue. And on the flip side, the entry of robots into public space can also raise concerns about, for instance, um, increasing surveillance either by the robots or of the robots. Robotic systems are expensive. If you think about uh, sort of smart city that in, in 
that relies on or uses robotic systems for its efficiency. Uh, there may be surveillance to protect those systems. There have been notorious examples of people beating up or destroying robots in public spaces, and so that could generate increasing surveillance. Uh, the potential inequitable exclusion of some members of society in favor of those who can pay who can afford to pay to use robots and to, to access the spaces in which they operate. Um, and also the disparate impacts of robotic systems on the humans who live and thrive in the public spaces where, for example, autonomous vehicles are being tested. Um, so the introduction of autonomous vehicles onto, onto public roads, turning those roads into test labs for corporations that operate the vehicles can have disparate impacts on the individuals who want to use that space for alternative purposes, including protests, including cycling, including pedestrianism, things like that. So because robots can affect the public nature of the space where they operate, uh, then I would argue that this public location of the operation of a robotic system should simultaneously inform how it's regulated. So if we look at these three different components of public space and think about how robots can affect one or more of these components, that in turn, I think, creates a justification or, or um, a reason why regulators and lawmakers need to take the public location of the robot into consideration when thinking about how to regulate the robot. But the challenge then is that we don't have one clear vision of what a public space is, what values guide a public space, what values should guide the regulation of a robot in public space. So you might have a regulator or a decision, like a judicial decision maker, who thinks, yes, it's significant that this, this system operates in public space. That should be factored into how we assess how the law applies to it. Um, but if we don't have one vision of what that means, we could end up with dramatically different regulations even though we're coming at it from this position of public space is important to, to the consideration, to how we regulate. So again, pulling from law and geography, but also from some Canadian precedent, I, I could identify at least three, although I do not think this is exhaustive, but at least three visions, legal visions, of what a public space is. And I'll go through each of those. Um, in case anyone's not familiar with this robot on the slide, this is the Hitchbot. Um, if you're interested in talking about it more, let's talk about it in the discussion. Hitchbot has a very interesting social history. Not specific to public space, but it Im implicates public space. Okay, so at least three different judicial visions or legal visions of what a public space is. The first is the public space, but the public space is the physical location of the public sphere. So this vision, um, sees public space as a communal site, so a site for, for anyone to enter into, to interact. Uh, this is a site for free expression, where, where the values of free expression can really be lived in, in a physical way. Um, it's a, a physical location for sharing, but also a place where we experience discomfort. And discomfort in a public space can be, in this vision, central to its or, sorry, can be a central value to the public space. So what I mean by that is that it's a place where people go, they see difference, they see different ideas, they may, the comfortable might become, or might be exposed to discomfort, and that is seen as the value that helps to generate a better, more fulsome society. 
this vision is particularly uh, relied upon, I guess, is, is particularly demonstrated in freedom of expression cases. Maybe a, a, you know, not the extreme version of this, but free expression case law tends to rely on this idea of public space as the public sphere, as a place for expression and sharing. And a public sphere view or a public square view of public space um, encourages deregulation or non-regulation. So it encourages spontaneous interaction rather than highly regulated conduct. Uh, and so in that sense, when we think about it in the context of robots, would, would discourage regulating against the use of robotics in public space that somehow enhance expression or expressive interests. So things like making videos, journalism, those kinds of uses of public space would really be encouraged even through robotic systems. Uh, but it might discourage the use or encourage regulation of the use of robots where those interfere with human interaction and human spontaneity. So things that, that interrupt the human use of public space would be discouraged through this particular judicial view of public space. The second legal vision of what public space is or what values should guide public space is very similar to the first, but different in some important ways. Um, so it's public space as a regulated and orderly public square. So the first really rests on this idea of public space as a communal space. The second rests on the same premise, but comes at it from a different perspective in terms of what is the role of regulation. So in the first view, regulation can be a problem. Law can in inhibit some of the spontaneous interactions that people have. In the second vision, law is crucial to encouraging people to enter into public space. So in this vision, lawmakers would be encouraged to regulate in ways that that make public space a place that is desirable to the majority of the population. So make the space orderly and inviting to most people. And that's how we get the most out of public space from this view. Discomfort in this vision is problematic because it discourages people from entering into public spaces. This view is is not unpopular in some uh, prominent urban design literature, but we've also seen it arise in case law in Canada. One example actually out of Toronto was a case called Batty in Toronto. Um, this decision emerged out of the Occupy movement when an encampment was built, a protest encampment was built in a park in Toronto that was partly publicly owned, partly a municipal space, partly owned by a church, a local church. Um, and the protesters were cited in trespass in wanting to keep the camp going through the evenings, as, so keeping the camp 24-7 in the park. Um, and in rendering the decision saying that the uh, trespass citation was not unconstitutional, the court in that case cited this specific view of public space, saying that the encampment discouraged members of the public from coming into the park to walk their dogs or to play ult literally cited ultimate frisbee. Um, so to do these things that the judge saw as being the, the core value of a public park. Like we want people to come here and feel comfortable. We don't want them to be faced by protesters in a tent and an encampment that might discourage them um, from coming into the park. And part of the ruling also looked at, uh, although maybe more so in Obiter, but looked at um, the 
the impact that that had on people wanting to use the park to then access <coughs> nearby shops and stores and commerce and, and spend money and that sort of thing. So from this view, systems like uh, surveillance robots might be permissible if they're used in ways that ensure the safe and orderly regulation of a public space. So I mentioned earlier the use of that surveillance robot in San Francisco. This particular view of, of public space might actually justify that kind of use of a surveillance robot in which a robot could be used to discourage things that keep people out of public space and thereby encourage the majority to enter into public space. The, main, the major issue with this view um, is its tendency toward ignoring, maybe, or potentially ignoring, uh, a consideration, a critical consideration of whose comfort and discomfort matters. So how do we define who we want to encourage to have come into public space? And by virtue of that, who gets excluded from public space? And I'm not, an, I don't have an ethics background, I have a legal background, but this raises ethical uh, questions that I think you all might be able to delve into even further about the ethics of criminalizing the activities of one group in order to make another already more politically powerful group more comfortable in that space. So that, that is a tendency that could be justified by this view of public space. Given that, I do think in reality, in practice, many, many public spaces have at least some element of regulation in them for the purposes of safety, um, for maybe even purposes of orderliness. So this can be seen as a spectrum. It's not necessarily that there's one uh, type of approach that's taken from this vision, but I think it's helpful to offset this with the first vision so that we can see where on the spectrum a lawmaker or a court might be falling when they're making decisions about how robots are used permissibly in public space. Okay, and then the third vision of a public space is completely distinct from the first two. So the first two treat public space as a communal space, but they approach how we make it more communal or more public friendly in different ways. The third vision views public space as a government-run property. So in this case, private property, privately owned by an individual or a company or whatever the case might be, um, the contrast to that property is public property which is owned and operated by the municipality or whichever government has jurisdiction over that, that space. This view uh, focuses predominantly on the regulating government's decision around what that space is to be used for and rules that permit or encourage the use of that space in that way. And so we see this vision coming out, again, in some Canadian case examples, including some out of Vancouver that involve challenges to anti-panhandling laws. So the city of Vancouver had enacted laws that would discourage individuals from, uh, in their view, obstructing sidewalks in order to panhandle. Uh, and there was a charter challenge to that, that restriction or that municipal bylaw or ordinance. And the court found that while panhandling did amount to an expressive activity, the primary function of sidewalks is the efficient movement of people from place to place. In particular, and again, we get back into some of the commercial considerations that factor into this assessment. In particular, it allows the sidewalk allows people to move from store to store while they're spending money. And so the government, even though the ordinance violates free expression, the government was justified in doing that 
because of the significance and validity of uh, having laws that ensure the space is used for its primary function. So in the case of public sidewalks, that's efficient movement. In the case of roads, that would be efficient and safe driving. Um, in other situations, that could be you know, different purposes. So this kind of uh, vision of public space could justify permissive regulation of robotic technologies that enhance municipal goals for different public spaces, like, for example, autonomous vehicles being used on, on public roadways. That could be justified through this vision of public space because we'd say, well, the roads are meant for driving and autonomous vehicles improve safety and they improve efficiency of the roads, and so that's what we should focus on. And it's, it's potentially easy to do that without explicitly addressing the fact that because of the way the robotic system operates um, and because of its um, tendency against spontaneity, let's say, that might actually lead to other uses of the public roadways being deregulated or regulated against. So what I mean by that is autonomous vehicles operate based on sensors. Um, something like a spontaneous use of a road might discourage the use of autonomous vehicles. So if individuals wanted to stage a protest in a roadway, it would discourage the use of autonomous vehicles, which a municipality might see as a problem if autonomous vehicles have been introduced to increase road efficiency. So a protest would immediately contradict the municipal purpose of that space and could potentially justify the imposition of a law that says no protest on the public roads because it gets in the way of our autonomous vehicles. They're all frozen and stuck because all of their sensors can see people and now they're, you know, they've blocked up all of our city roads and nobody can get anywhere. Um, so there's the potential for this vision of public space actually justifying laws that prohibit expressive uses of public space. So in the same way that the laws prohibiting panhandling prohibited expressive uses of the space, robotics regulation could do the same, potentially, but without maybe as much explicit recognition by either the lawmakers or the individuals who will be impacted by those laws in the end um, at the time that the decisions are being made. Okay, so we need to consider how the legal designation of the space can lead to different approaches to regulation of things, conduct, and people in that space. I think a, a critical assessment of this reciprocal relationship between how robots impact public space and how public space in turn impacts robotic regulation allows for uh, sort of a teasing out of some of the issues that arise when we're talking about robots in public spaces, and particularly the impact on the public nature of that space. Revealing the process, this reciprocal process of robots impacting public space, public space impacting robotic regulation, or the introduction of the robots in the first place, can help make some of the trade-offs or the priorities in the minds of the decision makers who permit this uh, more visible and therefore more debatable. And I think that, in in the very least, is crucial. So, having talked about uh, what makes a space a public space, and then also talking about how does public space potentially influence robotic regulation, I now want to wrap up with the last section of the presentation, which is a normative argument of at least two principles that I think, drawing from everything I've talked about already, 
should inform how regulation of robotic systems in public space is developed. So two principles that should inform that regulation. If we accept that robots and the laws that regulate them and their operators, and the laws that regulate potentially the people who encounter robots in public space, can change the nature of public space, making it potentially less or more public to different individuals in different ways, then I think it should be crucial that lawmakers consider the public nature of the space where robots will be introduced. Um, but obviously a robot, sorry, a robot, a lawmaker, maybe some of them like robots, I don't know. <laughs> obviously a lawmaker guided solely by the fact that a system's operated in public space can lead to dramatically different types of regulation um, depending on what legal vision that regulator is relying on. So two principles that I think should at least inform how regulation is approached through the lens of this robot's going to be a public space and that's significant are first, that robotic systems should never be prioritized over human access to a public space. So where the introduction of a robotic system in public space requires targeted legislation that either excludes or has the effect of excluding people from that space, then I think, I would argue, that that system should not be introduced. So if in order to introduce the robot, we need to exclude people, particularly where we need to do a target, or where, where it would result in a targeted exclusion of particular people, then we shouldn't have that robot. Humans should come first when we're thinking about public space. So, you know, in building on those three visions of public space that I talked about, in this context, I would argue that regulators should explicitly avoid any reliance on that second vision of public space, so that regulated and orderly public sphere, that's used to justify the exclusion or further marginalization of already vulnerable users of public space. And they should regulate, regulators should regulate against robots that serve to exclude public space. Um, and I would argue they can rely on or draw from that first vision of public space to justify those types of regulations. And so I already mentioned uh, this surveillance robot that's on the slide behind me, um, but I think that the situation that occurred in San Francisco is actually a good example where regulators did exactly that. Uh, so, I, I already mentioned, but the SPCA was using this 400-pound nightscope robot, so I've got it on the slide so that you can see, just to, to get a sense of what it looked like, to discourage an encampment on public property near the SPCA's private property. Um, and I think of a, a version of the second vision of public space, so like that that we saw in the decision in Batty in Toronto, could have been used to justify that use of the robot. But in San Francisco, public protests, after individuals you know, got wind of what was going on, there, were, there was strong public protest and outcry against that use of robots. And the public protest ultimately led the Department of Public Works in San Francisco to prohibit that use of robotics with the threat of a $1,000 fine every day that it was used. Uh, subsequent to the prohibition coming into effect. So I think that that's 
to me, that is a, a, a good example of this exact idea that humans should take priority in public space over the use of a robot, that's especially one that specifically targets humans uh, and specifically targets communities to be excluded from a public space. I think that contradicts the very understanding or idea of public space, even though in theory it could be justified by one of those visions of public space, which is why it's, it's important that we be careful of what values we're relying on when we talk about public spaces. And then my second normative argument, and sorry, I know the, the picture is a little bit fuzzy, but um, I'll explain what it is in a second. My second normative argument is that where a robotic system makes a public space more accessible, differential regulation of access to or use of that robotic system should be avoided. Uh, so I think um, I can explain this best maybe with an example which will lead me to, to this picture behind me. So I gave you the example of drones and how drones make public airspace almost newly publicly accessible in a way. So a space that couldn't really be used by individuals readily unless they had a lot of money in an airplane. Um, are, it's now a little bit more accessible to use that space in a way that can include ex using it for expressive purposes. Airspace is heavily regulated for safety, especially for, for ensuring the safety of commercial aviation. So there, there are a lot of regulations that operate within that space. Um, and that includes drone regulations, including the ones that we have here in Canada and, and similar ones that are in the United States. But a recent example of uh, the differential regulation of the use of drones in public space, I think really highlights this second argument that I'm making, which is that lawmakers should avoid differential regulation of the use of robotic systems. So in 2014, drones were, were operated over Black Lives Matter protests in Ferguson, Missouri to gather in information, to gather footage in the public interest of the protests and also a police presence at the protest. And then in 2016, a drone was operated over no dapple protests at the North, so these were protests of the North Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock Sioux Tribe lands. And that's the picture behind me. So the drone was operated, the drone that I'm referring to anyway, uh, was operated by Aaron Turgeon, a man named Aaron Turgeon. He's an indigenous citizen journalist and, and a local to that area. He used the technology to capture video of police brutality against the protesters at the site. And that's what's in this image behind me. So the, the protests were happening in November, and this is footage of police using water cannons on protesters in the night. So you can imagine, I mean, it's freezing cold here outside, I know Toronto and North Dakota are different, but freezing cold outside, especially at night, the use of water cannons would make it almost untenably cold. So he captured that footage and it went viral and actually drew a lot of attention to the protests that were happening and particularly to the concerns around police uh, brutality and police presence at the protest site. Police shot at the drone and charged Turgeon with reckless endangerment. Those charges were later dropped at court, but there, were, there was a, a period of time in which he was under the stress and, and you know, I, I would imagine the stress and anxiety of awaiting a trial. Um, and following his use of the drone, immediately following his use of the drone to capture this footage, the Federal Aviation Administration, which is the regulator of drones and airspace in the United States, 
imposed a temporary no-fly zone over the protest site, which prevented members of the public from using drones over the protests in the way that the Turgeon and some others had attempted to do as well. However, under that no-fly zone regulation, police were still permitted to use drones for surveillance purposes. And the FAA did permit uh, journalists to apply for an exception to the ban on the use of drones, but they only, in the end, granted one exemption, and it was to a non-Indigenous, non-local journalist. And it was subsequent to uh, what had been taking place when Turgeon used his drone. So public airspace, I've already mentioned, legally designated as public, now newly accessible to the public, but the regulations that operate to control uses of that space or to control conduct within that space can have the effect of making the space public for some and not for others. The no-fly regulation had the effect of rendering that space less or not at all public despite it being legally designated a public space because it was no longer physically accessible or usable. And I would argue that this didn't even align with any of the three justifications or visions of public space. So it definitely didn't align with the first two, which are the, this vision of a communal public space, because in this case, members of the public were excluded from the use of the public space, which was reserved almost entirely, with the exception of that one journalist, for police surveillance use of the public space. But I would even argue that the third vision of public space as this municipal property or, or government property, in this case it would be the federal government property, um, to regulate as they see fit, that justification also doesn't even work here to explain or to, to permit this kind of regulation, differential regulation of access to public space. Because the Federal Aviation Administration was obviously not specifically concerned with the use of drones in public space because they permitted police to continue using drones in that space. So it wasn't a, a widespread safety concern that we need to stop drones from being used in this space. I could imagine a situation where like, maybe it's too cold, we're concerned that the technology won't function properly, we're going to ban drones in this space because there are so many people gathered below, we're concerned for their safety. That could be justified by that third vision of public space as a government property because they'd be operating it for the purposes of safety. And that, that might make sense even though it would still prohibit free expression and could be challenged from those first two views. It at least still has some justification in the third vision of public space that relates to the public nature of the space. But in this case, that, that justification doesn't even exist because some drones were permitted. So instead, it was a differential access that was generated through law to public space that had the effect of making the space only public for, for the already powerful law enforcement officers operating in the space below. So to me, this is a, a, a key example or a really demonstrative example um, highlighting that second principle that should guide the regulation of robotics in public space, which is that where a robot permits access to public space, in this case permitted a classic free expression type use of a public space, which was gathering information in public interest in the context of protest, where, where regulation differentially regulates against that kind of use, uh, that, I guess I should rephrase that, 
regulation should not differentially regulate against that kind of use of public space. And so this is an example of, of a contradiction of that second principle that I would say should really inform all robotic regulation uh, by lawmakers and courts in, in, in Canada. And particularly when a robotic device stands in as a member of the public, so in the case of a drone, in a sense standing in as a member of the public by giving a, a fresh vantage point on behalf of the public, but in the case also maybe of like telerobotic systems, which I showed a picture of earlier, where that can stand in as a member of the public, so an individual who can't go to a space could send a telepresence robot to that space and still be present in a sense, robotically and remotely. Uh, regulators should give special consideration to the, how their, their regulation of that system will affect access. So how will this affect individuals' ability to access spaces in new ways that are, that are generated through some of the, the special capabilities of robotic systems that permit this type of remote uh, operation or remote you know, physical presence. And so I would conclude there with those, those are the at least two principles. I'd be interested to hear if people have thoughts on further principles that should guide regulation. Um, but I'm also really just interested to hear your thoughts or questions or concerns about uh, this whole conversation. Um, anything that, that you'd like to share, I'd be really open to hearing. So thank you so much for, for your attention. <laughs>